All right, well, let's go ahead and get started this morning. We're going to be in 2 Peter. I'm going to start with a word of prayer, but if you want to turn to 2 Peter, we're going to be in verse number 1 in just a few minutes. But we'll go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing this morning as we open His Word. Amen. All right, well, we're going to turn to 2 Peter, and we're going to look at verses 1, really through verse um, 13. And we're going to kind of cover... Over the next two Sundays, we're going to break this text down to help us understand a couple of things. Now, when you, when you come up, or I shouldn't say when you come up, when you're uh, working on a sermon or, or a lesson, there's always a challenge to have the right kind of title, right? That's always very important. They teach you that in homiletics, have the right kind of title, you know, something that's catchy. So I've got two titles for this. <laughs> so anyway, I'm not sure which one's the best, but one could be Remembering Old Truths for a New Year, because that's kind of what the theme is. We're starting a new year here, and there's old truths here that really we need to remember, because Peter, we're about to see, wants us to remember these things. And then there's also the idea of the fact that First Peter mentions about our sacred duty to grow in Christ, or to literally to grow in the knowledge and the fellowship of who Christ is. So really, it's our sacred duty to remember these old truths and to walk in them. So 2 Peter begins um, with a letter that is going to the Christians here. Uh, he's writing back to the, to, the, to the churches as well as others in Asia, Asia Minor. Uh, 1 Peter mentioned uh, a lot of great truths that the people at the time needed. 2 Peter is written really by Simon Peter who was a servant of Jesus Christ and apostles we're about to see. And as he writes this letter to, these, to, to Christians, fellow Christians, he's wanting them to understand the fact that they're about to go into persecution. They, they have been experiencing it already, but they're getting, it's going to happen even more in this area of Asia Minor. And he speaks to them also about the false teachers that are coming and that are, that are rising up. So as we start, I'm going to go ahead and read the text and then we'll begin to talk about it. Verse number one, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have, have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love." Excuse me. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail or fall. 
For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of matter, since I, of this matter, by, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. You know, you ever thought about if you had, if you knew that your life was coming to an end, and, and I hope that, I hope everyone lives to be, have a long life here, but if you knew somehow within a few months or a few days, few weeks, few months, few years, that your life was coming to an end, and you were having to partake to someone or, or transcribe or write a letter or whatever, send an email to somebody, what would you say to them? And that's kind of where Peter is at. Peter is writing this second letter. It's his final letter. He's By now, Peter's probably in his late 60s or at least 70s, and he's possibly in prison in Rome, um, and... He has been a faithful steward of, of the Lord. He's been a faithful servant, uh, pastoring and helping out in the church in Jerusalem and others. But as he writes this letter, he begins to remind them of these wonderful truths. And verses 1 through 11 are what he mentions when he says in verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities or these things. Those qualities, those things are verses 1 through 11. The things that we're going to look at, the great and precious promises, the virtues that we're to follow, the to apply them and to make every effort and be diligent that we not um, fall short in, in our walk with the Lord. And so as he writes this, it's very interesting that these truths, when you break them down, and we're going to do that, they're, they're, they're wonderful. They just give us wonderful practical application of who Christ is, how we can apply His character, His virtue, His life, the fellowship that we have into our hearts and lives as we're supposed to do, the Word of God, so to speak, as we apply it, how it can transform us and help us. So uh, timeless truth might be from this t these first few verses is basically that God has, has given us a divine supply that will help us to be useful and fruitful in our relationship with Christ. And it's, he, he admonishes us to faithfully apply these and to practice them. There, there's actually, when you study this, there's actually parallel to John 15 where Jesus says over and over, you know, um, you are the you are the branches. I'm the vine. You know we're to we're we're to we're to keep ourselves in His love. Not let we have the power to do so. But He's saying is always keep that fellowship and that relationship with the Lord by obedience, keeping that always in the forefront. And as we do that, we bear fruit. Fruit is seen because He He says in 15 that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and by that way we'll have full joy and we'll experience the fullness of the Lord. But just to jump back for just a second, back on the background of, of this book, you know, as, as he wrote this letter, there really was a great threat of persecution in, 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 the, in the early church. Now, we're in America, so we see things from a different view. We do see threats to our faith. We can see politically, 
economically, depending on where you're at in the country. Uh, you can face hostility at work, even at home. I mean, we, did, we just came through the holidays, and I'm sure every one of you, if you have unbelievers in your family, you've experienced those heated discussions, uh, those uncomfortable moments where they look at you like, oh, we're going to pray, or you're going to mention Jesus again, you know? And, and you feel that tension. But can you imagine the fact that if we were meeting today, and we were in Asia Minor, and we're under the threat of any governing authority to come through those doors behind us and select certain individuals, take them out and execute them, or to imprison us, or to take our children away, as happened many times. So they're always under this threat. So he writes to them about things that pertain to a relationship with Christ and what needs to happen in their own hearts and lives, their attitude change, so to speak. So really, you would think, well, maybe he's going to tell them he would warn them to flee or to go to another country or to mention something about, you know, um, just hang in there. It'll, it'll, get, it'll be better, you know, one day. But he gives them practical ways to change their attitude, to change their heart, to change their, their worldview. But also in this book is later on, and we're not going to cover that today or next week, but he also mentions about these false deceivers that are coming in. And the way he, they're described in chapter 2 is actually very parallel to what you see in the book of Jude where he talks about these, uh, these false um, teachers coming in and, and, and bringing havoc into the church. Now, can you imagine you have the exter external threat of persecution and then you have the internal threat of false teachers. It's almost like the church, and the church has been going on for a while now since, uh, since Christ um, ascended into heaven and the apostles go out and they open churches and plant churches. You've got the ministry of Paul, you've got Peter, you've got the other apostles. So the church has been going a while. So you're really probably in, you're probably through the first generation into the second. But can you imagine? The fact is you would think that any organization that faces an external threat of extinction and then an internal threat of the twisting of the truth that governs that group, can you, you, would, you would probably say that group is doomed to failure. How could they win? Well, the Bible tells us how we win, right? That it's through external persecution, it's through internal conflict that we can grasp hold of our relationship with the Lord, follow the Scriptures, and actually become stronger. Can you imagine how that frustrates the enemy? To know that no matter how much the enemy persecutes the church, the church always gets stronger. Our hearts and lives may end here in the sense of we may shed our blood, our physical life may uh, end, uh, we may have a broken heart, but yet one day the promise is we're going to what? Be glorified, right? Salvation is not just in the past. It's not just now. It's in the future as well. So all this hope is what Peter is stirring up. These are these great and precious promises. These are the things that should encourage us even today while we have some control of those threats, Right? We can sit back and say, my little problems are nothing compared to what they had. I know, I, I know that through Christ all this was going to work out. So <clears throat> another thing that we see here is that between these two epistles, some things had changed within the church. Again, like I said, there's probably you got the first generation that's transitioning into the second. 
And usually by the time you get to third or fourth generation, people become apathetic. And you see that in history, right? You see that how, how, how a life of, of a church is like that. You have the ones that start it, right? And they put all the effort in, the energy. The second group is living on that energy and the foundation. By the time you get to third or fourth generation, it's kind of like, well, you know, uh, we don't understand the sacrifices that were made to build this. So there's always that challenge there. But the good news is that the prophecies of the Lord, the words of Christ, the words of God have been placed in Scripture for us today so they should always be fresh in our hearts and lives. We can read this the same way that they would read this letter and be encouraged no matter what we go through, the Lord is in charge. Well, real quick, let me, let's look at Peter for just a second. So I'm sure many of you are very familiar with Peter. But why I don't want to mention who Peter is is because Peter starts off by mentioning in verse number one, Simeon or Simon, Peter, a servant. Now, remember, he had a name change, right? He became Peter, right? He, the rock by which Christ would build his church. So he mentions his old self in a way and his new in the sense of pre-conversion, conversion Peter. And then he mentions himself as a servant which if we'll really translate that correctly, it's the Greek word doulos. Many of you know this. It means slave, not just bond servant, not just someone who willingly gives themselves over to be a servant for a time or an indentured servant, but someone who's actually owned and governed by the authority of another, a slave. He mentions that here. It's interesting because when you look at Peter... When you look at Simon Peter, we see that he has a very humble beginning. Who was he? He was an unlearned fisherman. Don't know much before then. Probably if you were alive during this time, Peter could tell you, right? <laughs> All right. One day when we get to heaven, we'll find out the whole backstory. But right now we just know from Scripture that he was an unlearned fisherman. He's just a commoner. Fishermen are probably kind of like a lot of your laborers today. They're out laboring, earning a wage, bringing it home to the family. In this case, it was the fishing industry. Um, he was bold and impetuous. We know that just by his demeanor, his, his actions, even as being called. Um, he was called of Christ, which means he was chosen for a, a special role within the body of Christ, and that is to be an apostle. We saw that Christ uh, clarified him as Peter the rock, meaning the, li the little rock by which the the true rock would be built on in a sense. I mean, he would be a cornerstone in the church, but kind of like the small pebble in a way. But we see that Christ saw his potential. Now, here's the understanding. Christ doesn't look at a person's heart and life and sees this potential, and therefore he saves them because of it. But what is in all of us is the things that God has given us the day we're born. We have the raw elements of what it means to be a leader or uh, a great follower, or uh, whatever the God has called you to be, an occupation or position or character, those raw materials are there. But my point is Christ uh, saw his position of what he would be because the Lord had prepared Peter before the foundation of the world to walk in those good works, right? So he knew Peter, and he knew him, and so he saw his leadership. We see uh, some of the great highlights of Peter's life. His great confession of Christ. When Jesus asked, who do, you, who, who do men say that I am? And it was, it was everywhere, right? It was, the, it was you're John the Baptist, you're so-and-so, you're this. And 
turns to Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter's like, you are the Christ. I mean, he just lays it on out there. You're it. You're the man. You're the one we've been looking for. No pretense. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't say, hey, Peter, man, you got it all right. You're awesome. No, he's like, this has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit of God. But he gives Peter credit, of course, because Peter, Peter felt that witness, knew who he was. And then there's the highlight of walking on the water, which would be anybody's highlight, right? To be able to walk right across the lake, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> wouldn't have to get wet. But in this case, the Lord did that to demonstrate to him that keeping our eyes on Christ and following his words is, is that we will do his will. And for that moment, it was to walk on water. And then we saw, then we read about his presence, the man of transfiguration, which later on in this chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 3, or in, or in 2 Peter is what I'm trying to say, he, he clar- actually chapter 1, he clarifies that. He says, listen, we're eyewitnesses to the transfiguration. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty, pretty awesome. That's about as high as it gets on this side of heaven, to see Christ glorified. And when that happened, he also saw... And as well as his presence at the empty tomb as well. That's amazing too. Not only transfigured, but post-resurrection. But what do we see also? We see his failures, right? What's a big one? A big one is, a big one is his denial, of course. But to have Jesus turn to you and say, get behind me, Satan, right? What did Peter do? Well, that's, we're not going there, you know? We're, we're not going to follow your command, Lord. You need to do something else. And for that moment, the, the lie that was in Peter's mind came out of his mouth, and he rebuked the Lord, and uh, Jesus had to say, you know, get behind me, Satan, in that, in that regard. And then we have the denial of Christ. Well, Peter's under pressure, under persecution. He denies Christ. And, and in a sense, that betrayal is as serious as the betrayal of Judas. One gave Christ over. And Judas and Peter gave up on Christ. Denial, still denial. But what do we see? We see true repentance. Why? Because Peter was the Lord's, right? How many times have we failed in our life? I don't know that any of us have rejected Christ or denied Him, but we've come pretty close sometimes, right, when sin is put in our face and we love it more sometimes than we love the Lord. And we all, we all feel the sting of when we sin like that and we deny who we are in Christ. But hey, the Lord restores us, doesn't He? He restored Peter, He restores us. And then we saw some, some other great highlights. One where he, he had a foundational role in the formation of the church. We see that he also, during that time early on, Paul had to come rebuke him. You know, Another brother had to come in and practice some church discipline, right? Nothing wrong with that. And get, and get Peter back on track. But we still see him as a, fo- a foundational person in that. Then we see him preaching in the book of Acts and a leader in the church of Jerusalem. So really, as a man, outwardly and in- inwardly, he's just like us. Well, you say, well, he's an apostle. He was some, no, he, he, the Bible says in Corinthians that God uses the common things of this world. You and I are common. If you're here today, you're common. We're all sinners. We're all lost. The Lord calls us to Himself. We, we by faith, turn in repentance and faith to Him, and He saves us. We're all made from the same stuff. We're just like Peter. And 
we see that many times that through that, how God uses us to do great and mighty things like He did with Peter. But one of the things to understand is right as he's writing this letter, Peter is about to, history tells us he was crucified upside down. But he's about to be taken and he's about to be executed. So again, I ask the question, what would you write? What would you send to someone? What question or what statement would you make to someone if this was your last time on earth? What would you tell them to do when it comes to spiritual matters? One of the things, too, is he starts off in verse number one, and I mentioned earlier, he mentions the word doulos. And it's interesting to understand that Christians of the day understood what this meant. Today we don't, because, because of translation, it's not very palatable, not very PC to call ourselves slaves of Christ. It doesn't sound good. I can clearly understand that, depending on... Um, your history or your family's history in America, how that can be very offensive. But nevertheless, that's what the word's translated, and that's what it means. To be, uh, during that day, to understand what a, what a doulos was, a slave, there was really four main points that, that we know from history. One, you would have to understand that you are inalienably, I'm sorry, you are completely belonging or inalienably, sorry, Controlled by another person. You are completely possessed by that person as, a, as property. Second, you're unqualifiedly at the disposal of that person. So, in other words, we're possessed by God. We're completely at to be at the disposal of God. And number three, we're to have unquestioning obedience to that person. And in this case, God himself. Number four, we're to be in constantly, or we're to be constantly in service and ready to serve to that person, and in our case, the Lord Himself. So we're possessed, we're at the disposal, we should be obedient and always serving. Now, with, with those attitudes as a Christian, how can one be offended by that? Because think about it. If our true master, Jesus Christ, is as loving and as caring as we know Him to be, and He is, right? We can read that in the Scripture. Then whatever He tells us to do, when we do it, it's going to receive a full blessing from Him, right? And we'll have full fellowship with Him. So He's the best Master and the best Lord that we could ever have. The good news is He also calls us friends. We're not just at His disposal, but we also have friendship. And then on top of that, we're adopted in the body of Christ. We're now heirs and joint heirs with Christ. And we're children of God because of that. So by making this statement, he's reminding the church of who he is. He's also letting them know that he humbly sees himself as a servant of God. But then he also mentions what? Being an apostle, which is very important. He's reminding them that while he is in position, a servant, he's to be humble before God. We're all to be that way. His role in the church is one of authority and leadership. He's an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ. He's been given this position by God. He didn't take it. He didn't steal it. He didn't, he didn't work his way up. This isn't some 
uh, ascension in, in the hierarchy of the church. This was given to him and granted to him by Christ himself. And the authority is that in his earlier ministry, we saw the miracles, we saw the signs. But now as we transition into the time to where what we would call cessationism, where we see the things ending that no longer are needed to confirm the Word of God, that the Word of God becomes the sole authority and becomes the way by which we see uh, the miracles of God done. They've been done. We know who He is. Because the credentials of Christ have been made evident, uh, the oral traditions are now passed down to the written. And we have our text here today, our combined text, our Bibles, that... The authority is in them. And, and the apostles understood that. That's why they began to write everything down. Because they knew that this, this would be, they're, they're guided and led by the Holy Spirit to do this. They knew this. They may not see the totality of it, but they definitely saw what they, were, they needed to do. So what does this mean? This means that Paul is, I mean, Peter is telling us, as Paul did, Paul many times starts his letters like this. He's saying, this is the proper role of leadership. You're to be humble. You're to accept your calling. You're to dedicate yourself to that role. And you're to exercise it with all full diligence, whatever power is within you, all the grace, the mercy that God can provide in total diligence and dependence upon the Lord to exercise that authority. So we see that in verse number one. And he, he, he just reiterates that to us. So let's break our text down and let's start off with, we're going to look at the Lord's sufficient supply. We're going to see this in the next couple of verses and we're going to see His supply. Well, what is His supply? I'm just going to shoot them out front to you and then we'll break them down. One, we're going to see His gift of faith. We're going to see His divine power, His effectual call, His precious promises, His fellowship that's offered to us, and his freedom that is realized. Because it says here, straight, straight in verse, really finish in verse number one, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The first thing is his gift of faith. Now it's interesting that this gift of faith brings all believers on equal ground. And what does he say? He says, to those who have obtained, obtained the word there means given, it's, it's, it's granted to you. There's a source, God Himself, right? The Holy Spirit of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, granting you the faith to believe. It speaks of salvation. It speaks of regeneration. It speaks of our dual responsibility. Oh, I should say dual responsibility. The responsibility that we are to exercise that faith, right? There's always that mystery. We all understand this. This has been taught so many times in the church, and I don't want to muddle it up, <laughs> right? But it's one of those things where you have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility together. The, the tension that's always in Scripture, and we see it all through the Word of God. Not a tension as in a conflict, but something that our mind has a hard time grasping hold of. The sovereignty of God and salvation and man's responsibility and the appropriation of the faith that's given and how that brings into our hearts and lives the reality of salvation. But think about this. The tension's always there. Think about where we see the hypostatic union of Christ. Say, what is that? Well, that is 
the God-man, Jesus, fully man, yet fully God. And there is a, there is a, a duality, a commingling, yet not a, a uh, reduction of either. How the two can be. Well, same thing as this. How, how can we, um, God, give us freedom in, in, in our will to the point that we're, we have freedom only to the point that we're, to the, to the edges of, of how we're bound, our will is bound as, as, as fallen creatures in sin, but we do have freedom of choice in that regard to, to a limit. How that, and then God's sovereign uh, work in our heart and life and with the commands to believe, and then uh, we see that it's God that initiates this in our heart and life, right? We know this, right? No man can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. And at the same time, uh, he says, if anyone will call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. And these great texts that just encourage us to preach the word, at the same time know that God must do the work. And so he's, he, he, he kind of hints at this. Because in 1 Peter, he lays it out very well when he talks about the salvation that comes from Christ. But this faith is given to us. It is faith as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And I, I want to turn to it real quick. You don't have to. I just want to make sure I read every word. You get so many verses, you know, as you memorize. And then when you, when you find time to say them from your heart, you mess them up. <laughs> I don't want to do that. All right, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Well, what is the gift? All that that's mentioned in the beginning of verse 8. The grace and the saving faith. It's there. It's a gift. So this faith is given to us, but it is of equal value because it's given to all those who are being drawn to Christ, who are being saved. It's the same faith. So your faith, the saving faith, and the faith that we're now, really saving faith is living faith. Um, sometimes we, we split the two. Like it's two separate things, but really faith is faith. Faith is faith that saves you, is the faith that allows you to walk in obedience to the Lord and allows you to walk in a newness of life, and it's a living faith. But this faith that's given to us is a faith that brings about the righteousness of God in our life. It's of equal value or of the same kind. In fact, Galatians 3.26 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that means before God, standing before God, does that mean we don't have roles? No, we all have different roles. But positionally, and in a sense of value, our, 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 equal stand is, our standing before God is equal. No one's greater than anyone else. Peter's an apostle. I'm Brian. You're who you are. You have equal standing before God. You're all called and, and into a special relationship as sons of God. That's males and females in this room. That is a title. It means you're an heir and a joint heir to everything. To be a son of God is a position. It's a title. It's an honor. And we're called to that. It's given to us. Through faith, when we exercise that faith, when that faith is given, and we 
accept the effectual, well, well we just, we, the, like effectual cause effectual. It draws us to himself, right? And when we will say, I believe, that's what we'll say. And we feel that in our heart and life, the change that takes place. And it's a change that lasts for the entire, your entire life. One commentator put this way, he says, No matter how much authority a believer has been given by Christ, he should never forget that the great joy of his or her life should simply that be that he or she is saved by faith like every other saint. Now we, we've got some that have done some great things with, with the resources they were given. You can look and you can see that. You, many of you have heroes in the faith that you look up to. And you sit there and you say, man, they've done this. I want to be like them. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. You too can exercise that faith that's been given. Another thing too is we see His divine power. And in the sense that He gives His faith to us, this faith, this gift, and then we're connected to Him by His power. Now, what does it mean, His divine power in that verse? It says, obtain an equal standing... Um, I'm sorry, may grace be, and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord and His divine power. We, we get connected to His power based upon this, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now he mentions here the same person, Jesus as the God-man and our Savior. He's the Lord. Not only is He God, but He's also the Lord of our life. And He says that may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. That word knowledge is not information. It's the Gnostics would use this. Uh, the Boy, I hope nobody... They're good. None of my Greek instructors are here. So anyway, you, you got the um, gnosis, right? The knowledge. And then there's the, I think it's the epigenosis. I could be messing that up. So anyway, but anyway, the point is there's the intimate knowledge. That's what's being mentioned here is this intimate relational knowledge, not just, hey, I know that person. I've read their bio. I know them. No, it's we hang out together. We've had life together. We've, um, and some, some say we, we've, we've shed blood with each other together. We've worked together. We've done this. We've done all this. We're, we're very intimate. And he, that's the thing here. He says here, our connection to Him comes from His faith that's given, but it comes from our relationship with Christ. And there's anything that I, I want to emphasize this morning is that we are in a relationship. Salvation. I, I say this at faith knowing Y'all understand this, but the church that we were at before, they don't. Salvation is always seen as a transaction, almost like a ticket, right? I got my card punched. I'm good. But salvation is a person. It is Jesus Christ. It is a relationship with that person. It is always seen as a personal, intimate fellowship and relationship. And that's what he's saying here. Through the knowledge of him, through the intimate relationship, that's how we're connected. We're connected to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit through that. We're connected by way of the Holy Spirit of God, which makes us sons of God. The mark of that, the mark of sonship, the mark of that relationship is the divine power that's been granted. Well, what is, what is how do you know you have that divine power within you? How do you know you're connected? Because of the evidence of godliness in your life. 
the things of God become your things. The thoughts of God become your thoughts. The attitudes of Christ become your attitude. And it's progressional, right? It's not as the, well, I wish, you, I wish it all came at one time, don't you? That'd be awesome. But it don't because we have to grow. We have to grow in Him. And then he, he mentions here too, this life and godliness, everything pertaining, these, this divine power has granted to us all the things. This relationship has granted to us this power and everything that is for life and godliness. Well, what is life? The life that's mentioned here, believe it or not, speaks of the life in salvation. It speaks of the life of, it really speaks of, of a sanctification. But it really speaks of a life that goes, that has a start and an end. Now think about this. Where does life for us in Christ start? Starts the moment we're born again, right? Where does it end? It doesn't. You're right. But what is the transition? We would call that being glorified. So one day, we're going to be set free by way of death's door or by way of the, of the call to, of the church to ascend to heaven to be the bride of Christ. When that happens, you are glorified. All the trappings of this mortal body, is, they're gone. It's been, it'll be changed. And that's what he says here. He's given us everything that will help us in life. Here, spiritual life. Here, and one day it'll be perfect when we're glorified. And then he says godliness. Well, that incorporates our attitude, our, our um, way we live. He speaks of life as being the totality of having a beginning at salvation, never ending in glorification. But he says, what, what about the middle? What about the gooey stuff in the middle? Right? Well, that's the godliness part. That, that's the effects of it. He says here that, or, or I'm sorry, the word means here to incorporate worship into active obedience is really what it means. Godliness is your way of glorifying God by simply obeying His Word and allowing His Word to change your heart and life. It's attitude change. It's a heart change. Something that is so difficult. We have so many kids in our house. <laughs> Different ranges, right? I, we have seven. So we've got them from 26, who's married now, all the way down from 18 on down, uh, down to seven. We're fixing to have all triple sevens, right, in just a few months. So... The, di the, the difficulty you have in a family is always the issue of heart change, right? You can get them to do pretty much anything you, that you want them to do to a point, but if their heart's not behind it, it falls short, doesn't it? Well, good news is, one day your heart's going to be completely changed. And it's, don't wait till then is what I'm trying to say. Don't, don't, don't sit there and put all your hopes on heaven. Let's work on changing it now by obeying God's Word. And then we see here, he mentions too, of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. This is the effectual call. I mentioned this earlier, so I won't spend too much time on it. But here we see this effectual call. What is the effectual call? That is the call that God gives every person who's being saved. That is the call to bring them to Himself. That is the call that we answer that we respond in, that we give our heart and life to Jesus Christ. Really, He arrests our heart. And it says here, called us to His own glory and excellence. So a point might be, we're called 
to be connected to Him, but we're not called to, to a group or a religion. Today, Christianity, by most people, is seen as just another religion. Oh, one of the great three religions. Reality is, it's a call to a person, to a Godhead. It's a call to transformation. But then he says, called us, now this is interesting, to His own glory and excellence. Glory speaks of that which can only come from God. So here's what He does. He calls us to His divinity. And then He says He calls us to His excellence. That literally speaks of His moral excellence as a man. Remember, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. This union that we still cannot grasp. And theologians, if you try to explain it too much, it almost gets worse. <laughs> right? It just sounds sometimes so confusing. But a lot of the creeds have nailed it. it nailed it right down. It's just like, oh, I just, it's wonderful to read that. But we trust Scripture that, that He is divine at the same time He's 100% man. But He's sinless and He did everything the Father asked Him to do in 100% obedience with no sin and He represented us and His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His sacrifice uh, frees us from the, the, the bonds of sin. His resurrection power gives us new life. And ascension into heaven guarantees the fact that we'll be raised and glorified. So His life represents the glory of who God is. His testimony. In fact, it says clearly when you see Christ, you see the Father. You see all that God is in Christ. At the same time, He must represent us. And he must serve God the Father as we are to serve him. And that is in complete obedience. So he's called us to that role. To glorify God and to live an excellent life as an obedient servant to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does this. We know this. Through the cross and the resurrection, we clearly see the glory that is to be to God and the life that is to be lived in an excellent upright way before the Father. That call, by the way, as I mentioned earlier, is an unchangeable call. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This morning, if you know you've been called of God, pursue His glory and pursue the excellence of who Christ is. Another thing we see here is we look into His precious promises. These are all the blessings that we can find in Scripture that has been given to us that show us the great and precious blessings that God has for us. Now, you ought to say this because it's so true. Context is king, right? I'll, but I encourage you to go read your Scriptures, find the promises of God, and see that they all point in Christ, they, always po they all point to Christ, and they're all in Christ, and they're all in our Word, and appropriate those promises in the sense of putting them always before you, anticipating by faith that God will guide you through them. Now remember, context is king. We can't go and take a promise of the land, of a blessing of the land that was given to Israel, but we can clearly see a principle behind that. We can see that God blesses, He does. It doesn't matter how bad your day is. If you truly understand the sovereignty of God and His loving kindness and His mercy, everything that comes from His hand is filtered through that, filtered through His will, and it is for our good 
and for His glory. And those attitudes help us to understand how valuable Scripture is for us. But he says they're precious. He, he gives us this value. He says these great and precious promises or precious and magnificent promises. That speaks of the value as being priceless and being these things are so magnificent that they are literally above all other promise that anyone could ever make to us. These promises help us in our fellowship with the Lord. In other words, when you're in a relationship with someone, and I don't want to, I don't want to, because this thing can break down to where it, it just means not a whole lot. But in marriage, if you've ever gone through a difficult time and you're able to go back and somehow look at old letters that were written or something that was written to each one another or the symbols of your marriage, it encouraged you in difficult times to remember the love of your spouse even though it's a difficult time. Scripture is very much like that. You can go back in times of when it's really tough to be a Christian, and you can read and study His Word and be encouraged that He loves you, and He really is taking care of you. And these promises are things you can bank on right now, take to the bank, and they're always going to be precious and most valuable. One commentator says, What is a promise? He says, one has divined a promise as an assurance on the part of another of some good for which we are dependent on that person. The promise is of no value if the promiser is not able to give. But we know he is. How many promises has God meant to you that you've experienced in your life? And I'm not talking about the ooey-gooey feeling. I'm talking about you solid, you know it. You walk, you walk out of your, this, your, your trial and you just say, praise God. He truly is who he says he is. We say that and you say that now and you're like, well, man, you didn't believe that before then? Well, there's something about, there's something about a practical knowledge sometimes, right? Just to know that relationship is strong. That's like when you go to your spouse and you hug your spouse and you get that wonderful embrace or kiss. It just... Oh, I'm just so glad I'm married to that person. Right? There's times in our Christian life, our life where His promises just do the same. One other thing we see here is His fellowship that's been offered. In verse number 4, this last part of verse number 4, it says, By which He has granted us precious and great, very great promises, and so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. He says here, this fellowship that's offered is a fellowship of freedom, is a fellowship of being connected to a person. And this connection connects us to the divine nature of who God is, God the Father is, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And through them, we begin to be a, a uh, in, a, in a way you could say, a taster of these things, an, an ingester, an eater, partaker of someone who not only tastes, but they receive it fully into their life. It's kind of like Jesus is the bread of life, right? There's some that seem to only taste. But a true disciple participates. He eats the bread of life. In other words, he receives Christ into his heart and life as, so, as the only source of nutrient that will carry that person forward. Is the only source of energy and life and health. 
That's who the bread of life is, Jesus. So when we practice these promises, when we, well, first of all, when we, when we, when we receive His faith, and we have, when we are connected to His divine power, we understand the effectual call, His promises are reality, they become precious, and this fellowship that we entered into, when all of this is something that we are constantly before us, that's why Peter mentioned this. He mentioned to this church who's about to go through intense persecution, remember these things. And then he's going to give us application next Sunday, how we're to apply these things. But he says here that, this, that what comes out of this in the last point this morning is the freedom that's realized. He says right here, through this brings freedom to us. He says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, he writes this in past tense, but it's also present tense. It's, it's what they call a... Um, nah, I'm not going to go there. I'll mess it up. Anyway, so... Um, but it, it's where it's, an, it's, a, it's, it's a participle that means to us, or it, it means that it's, it's a done deal, but it's also active today in our heart and life. And so he says here, this freedom that's realized is, is, can be seen by what we don't participate in. In other words, we're not in a decomposing corpse. That's what corruption means. We've escaped the rotting corpse of this world and we have completely been freed from danger in Christ, who's our rescuer, by His faith, His power, His call, His promises, and His fellowship. And I ask you this morning, are you fully walking in an understanding of that freedom? You're saved today, you're in that freedom. But it's a lot like a people who live in a free country, Right? It's one thing to live in a free country, but it's one thing to exercise those freedoms. We need to exercise our freedoms in Christ. What do you mean by that, Brian? What areas in your life do you still smell that rotting corpse of corruption? What besetting sins are in your life today? Those small foxes that spoil the vine, as it says in Proverbs. Those little yappy dogs, right, that nip at your heels all the time. What are those things that are constantly before you, remember you've been freed from that. Apply His faith, His power, understand the call that you've been called to, take those promises, walk in the fellowship that He's given you, and realize your freedom from that corruption. You have escaped and you will be. Last verse. It says here in 1 John 2. I want to read this real quick and then we'll close. 1 John 2, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. This is a promise that John gave to the church here. He says here in verse number 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will, we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we have seen Him as He is. And everyone thus hopes in, in Him, in Him, remember, purifies Himself just as He is pure. So let's close this morning.